I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack. Yay! <laughs> yeah. We are here with Professor Lizzie Dastin, myself, and of course, Manny on the audio. Just the three of us. We can make it if you try. Okay, so today we... Oh, by the way, I'm going to give a big shout out to the Philippines. to all the, <laughs> No, to all the Filipino people. <laughs> Who be writing me? They be writing me. All my, all my fans and your fans. What did they say? They, they just love the show, man. I mean, it's it's a weird thing out there. Like, we just getting a lot of love for the Philippines. So I just wanted to make sure that we give that, it right back. That Thank we're, you. Super grateful. We're, we're giving it right back to them. So, hungry Renzi. <laughs> She and a bunch of other Filipino the names. Filipina people be riding in, and 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 uh, this is amazing the reach that we have in the show. We're getting we got a we got a bunch of you know stuff from from Iceland the other day, and just it's all Australia, over. Australia, it's really it's a, Canada, but you're very big in Canada. Very uh, yeah, but people be people be riding man, people be riding man. They be they be they be riding in. So what's up <laughs> to the world? Okay. <laughs> I'm on a lot of coffee. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about Walisi. Vasili. Vasili. Walisi. Where did Vasi- you get that? I don't know. I don't know how to say his name. Kind- <laughs> I always know. I thought he was monominous. Kandinsky. Kandinsky was like, to me, it was very monominous. But it's... Vasili. 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 Not much. Vasili with you. <laughs> Right? It's almost like that. Oh my God, you're ridiculous. I love so, your accent. Vasily <laughs> Kandinsky. Vasily Kandinsky is a Russian born artist. I knew Kandinsky. I'm going sh- to shut out Vasily because it's just so silly. Uh, I'm, I know him because my grandfather was a big Kandinsky fan. So when I went to my grandfather's house, he always had Kandinsky everywhere. And he loved Kandinsky, loved Montreal. A lot of those artists from the Bauhaus, he loved. Uh, me in particular, mm, not so much. But his life is interesting because he was a virtuoso violinist, which is crazy, right? You think about this guy who becomes a historically great painter. He's part of the annals of art history now. This guy was a master violinist. He was a virtuoso. Then he goes to law school. becomes a lawyer. That's a crazy thing, too. Like, you're really great at this. Nope, you're going to do this. You're really great at that. And then he goes, you know what? I don't want to do that anymore. He's with his wife. His wife says, uh, excuse me, motherfucker? What? And he says, oh, yeah, I'm not going to be a lawyer anymore. I'm going to be an artist. And she's like, oh, yeah, that's not happening. He's like, no, that's happening. So she leaves him. He moves to Paris and game over. He discovers what everybody does when they go to Paris. I don't care if you're Picasso or Kandinsky. You're coming from Spain or you're coming from, or you're coming from Russia. You discover one thing. During that time, that blows your mind. And what is that thing? Impressionism. Once you see Impressionism, game over. You're like, wait a minute. Who, Monet? Claude? You got to be out. The haystack. These things are... uh, I want to do that. I want to paint Impressionistically. I don't even know it's a possibility because he's coming from Russia, right? The land of repping and fetching and it's hardcore. He goes there 
changes his whole style. Starts to paint trees. Well, what are trees? Green and brown. Does he paint them green and brown? Nope. Paints them orange and bright blue because it's relative. That's his whole thing. It's just, let's just take a beat to marvel at the fact of how many artists' lives were changed when they saw Impressionism and how influenced they were by this little movement that became a great movement that now is, we all know, yeah, Impressionism, yeah, we all know that. But back then it was so different, right? Absolutely. And it, what you just said reminds me of a chart that the first curator ever of MoMA, this guy named Alfred Barr, that he produced. It's uh, it's all about modern art, the isms, what inspires what other movement. And it's really amazing. It's a great way to kind of isolate movements, but also see the, the cross-pollination between them. And I see if all of modernism is a tree, that Impressionism kind of represents the roots, that things grow out of Impressionism, either as an extension of or a rejection of either moving away or moving in the same vein, but mm. in a more more hyper-aggrandized way. And I think that with Kandinsky, certainly his use of observed colors, and color was a huge point of, of creativity for Kandinsky. He saw them as really very symbolic and spiritual. And he wrote this book called On the Spiritual or On the Spiritual and Art. I think that was in 1911. So he's really thinking about color, what they symbolize. But I think what he takes from the Impressionists is the fact that he's not painting things in a logical way. He's painting from a more either observational or also interpretive and a feeling space, not really a, a thinking one. And so that's, for me, the only cross-pollination between the Impressionists and Kandinsky. In every other way, I see him departing from them, but only because he had access to them. So you're right, this moment when he was in Paris and was introduced to the Impressionist work was huge. It catapulted his career, but in mm -hmm. a diametrically opposite place. And so we can talk about the progression of his art because I think since he had a really long career, we get to see where he starts and where he evolves. Mm -hmm. And he starts as one of the founding members of a German expressionist group called Der Blau Reiter, the Blue Rider. The Blue Rider, yeah. He yeah. was the leader of that, right? He and this guy, Mark, okay. Franz Mark. So oh, yeah, Mark. No, I'm kidding. You're, you're like, <laughs> and Mark. <laughs> Who's Mark? <laughs> Last name. So Kandinsky and Mark, and the two of them were trying to reinvest the world with spirituality through their painting. And they saw animals as deeply spiritual creatures. And Kandinsky and Mark are both painting animals, not in a color palette that we know the animals actually are, but through, again, this spiritual symbolic use of color. For instance, the horses could be blue, and blue was seen as the most ethereal color there was all of this coding that they produced. So red, I think, was the masculine color and related to mass, and yellow was a more feminine color. And so it's almost like you need a key in order to decode the true breadth of what these two artists are producing. But emotionally, it was to reinvest a world that was spiritually lacking with this kind of inner strength. And... I think it's important to see these works when you're charting his later stuff because it's representational. And Kandinsky, in 1913, he painted something that 
all art historians say, or most art historians say, was the first abstract work of art. And you know my feelings about saying that something is abstract. I think it's actually a misnomer mm -hmm. that things are abstracted, but nothing is actually abstract because everything has a reference point. Even if it's just painting a canvas white, that came from something that reminded the artist of something. Even if it's an unknowable connection, there is a connection being made. So nothing is fully abstract. Anyway, Kandinsky's work was definitely not abstract because if we look at the Der Blau writer, everything that he did later in his career, the improvisations, the compositions, are abstracted versions of these earlier landscapes. Yeah, you know, I don't, I, I, what you're saying is, is very poignant and uh, it makes me rethink, I guess, Kandinsky's work because, you know, I look at his work and it, it doesn't it doesn't touch me and perhaps the colors feel loud and, and that's why and you know now that I'm thinking about it in a deeper way uh, in the way that you're describing it I'm thinking about it oh interesting I could I want to go back and really relook that and reinvestigate that because I think that we know Kandinsky from his later work I think that's became the popular work of the time you know the the work that's perhaps hanging at more of the museums and living in more of the art history books and the work that the students are exposed to as they're studying the history of art. And I think those really get you know, fractured into real abstractness. Would you say that is true? I mean, I'm kind of leaning on you for your opinion because when I look at his, like, his white canvas and his circles and his spheres and his like antennas that he has, which are obviously highly symbolic, um, and very like a, you know, almost like a Moreau. That Moreau and him are kind of living in the same space in terms of their designs and compositions and their shapes, I feel. Yeah, totally different reference points because I think Kandinsky in the later art that you're describing was so influenced by music that his paintings are almost sonorous where we hear the colors and the sounds and we feel the beats of rhythms that are that are syncopated so yeah maybe just on its surface he looks similar to the biomorphic forms of Miro but to get back to your question do I think that his later work is abstract I think within the journey the arc of his work no because you can see the similar horse and rider forms they've just become whittled down to their essentials right. but I, I see landscapes in his work Maybe they don't recess from foreground to middle ground to background anymore. Maybe now they're an all-over composition and they reach from bottom to top and side to side. But I still see the divisions as loosely articulating landscapes. Often we see the suggestion of bodies of water. Mm -hmm. And a lot of his work, regardless of when they were produced, they feel apocalyptic to me. And a horse and a rider, that is a symbol of an apocalypse, but also a premonition of a rebirth. And if you think about the time that he's painting, 1913, to go back to that moment of supposed abstraction, that's right before the world is about to go to war. We're on the yeah. brink of global chaos. And I think a lot of artists at this time were picking up on that. And they were reflecting their own impressions of what was happening through their art. And actually, tragically, Mark, his colleague in the Der Blau writer movement, he died prematurely because he was sent to World War I and he died in battle. Wow. And then, of course, 
uh, he, he moves to Germany, uh, right? He's in Germany during this time, and he joins the very famous uh, Bauhaus, which is interesting because Bauhaus is B-A-U, and my name is B-U-A, and you're in Bua's house right now. It's just there's so many connections there's in my a, mind. There, is you blown. feel the connection right now. Let's just get <laughs> oh out of God. the seriousness of I your. I can't believe you just said that. You're you're <laughs> you're you're going so deep into Kandinsky. We had to derail you because you were going into a <laughs> wormhole of loving him so so much. So Kandinsky joins this movement, right? The Bauhaus movement, which the which the Nazis at the time who were in control considered degenerate art. Am I... No, uh, you no, are, you no, are yeah, not so wrong. Wait a minute. So, oh, okay. <laughs> because so of fascism, they, the Bauhaus closed. Sure. And, and because of fascism, the Bauhaus closed. And because of that, also, didn't Kandinsky have to... Didn't they run him out of Germany because he was really afraid for his life? I don't know whether that's true, but it I, definitely I, sounds true. I think true. that's true. I think that's true. I think that they ran him out uh, of, of Germany because of his... Because of his art and his beliefs. Well, that yeah. makes sense because he was incredibly progressive with his visual style. And the Bauhaus was a really utopic organization. We should do a whole episode on it. But we it's should. all about blurring the distinctions between fine art and craft. And so weaving was a celebrated practice. And furniture making and architecture and design. And there was no hierarchy within those various distinctions. Photography becomes huge. This guy, El Lizitsky, he ends up uh, being, or uh, Maholi Naj, sorry, not El Lizitsky, Maholi Naj becomes a, the leader of the Bauhaus. So it moves from an architect who is at the helm to a photographer. And I think that's really cool. They all wore these fun little outfits and vegetarianism <laughs> was promoted within the Bauhaus. Oh, and wow. so it's, it's really this, utopic microcosm at a time when the world was falling apart and mm -hmm. going to shambles. And so, of course, that was going to seem threatening to the Nazis mm -hmm. and to fascism because these people were not absorbing the tenor of the times. They were creating their own. And that kind of disruption was seen as, as startling and possibly a rebellion against authority. And it does make sense that Kandinsky would be a part of them because we know him to be a really spiritual, avant-garde thinker. And all of the apocalyptic scenes, they, to me, are prescient. They almost foreshadow what is going to happen decades later. And then another element of his art that we really need to discuss is the synchronicity with music, because he titled his works what composers typically titled their scores, these improvisations and compositions, and it's almost like he is painting a visual equivalent of sound. And he was deeply interested in this concept of synesthesia, which we have talked about before, but it's a blending of the senses. So you mm -hmm. can see sound, hear color, whatever that may be. And I don't think that Kandinsky experienced synesthesia necessarily, but that he is painting in a way that somebody who did might. Why, why would you say that? Because if he's painting it, why wouldn't he be experiencing it? I have read... First of all, I don't think people really know whether synesthesia is okay. actual. So okay. first of all, I, I use a caveat for that reason. And also, I know that he was influenced by, but somebody okay. like Monk, we might 
we might believe his that he synest- actually felt synesthesia, synesthesia was screaming at the top of his lungs. <laughs> right. And Kandinsky's was more an intellectualizing of synesthesia. Yeah. Well, I mean, that makes sense given the history of his, you know, virtuoso background as a musician. I mean, I, I think that, you know, not to derail from Kandinsky, but I think that a lot of artists use musical influence in their work. And I think that there is a syncopation and a beat to every artist's work. You know, I think that like, whether it's a drum bass or whether it's a, you know, kind of more like with, with Kandinsky, I, I think about a Bach concerto, you know what I mean? It's a little bit more like that. Um, other artists are, you know, very, I don't know, they're, they're a little bit more, some are classical, some are rock and roll. And I think that everybody, whether they paint to music or, you know, which we should do another episode on just that alone, because I think music influences art uh, very much. In, in their work, whether whether it's in their head or actually literally being played. I think that's true, but I also believe that Kandinsky, if he wasn't the first, he was among the first artists to literalize this exchange. Because artists certainly okay. after have, but I think it's because of the precedent that Kandinsky set. Like uh, Stuart Davis, when he saw Kandinsky's work at the 1913 Armory Show in New York, it completely pivoted his practice, and then his work became a visual manifestation of jazz. Let me ask you this. In the roster, in the list of the greatest painters, if you have 100 of the greatest painters, greatest artists, I'm not, I know you're not going to be, well, my painter wouldn't be on the top. Photographers, painters, uh, architects. Who would you, where would Kandinsky be? Would he be bottom 100 or would he be top to you? He actually used to be my favorite artist. So wow. it's funny that you would ask me that. He's no longer, but okay. I see... Why was he your favorite artist? I because think... the same thing for my grandfather. My grandfather loved yeah. him so much, and I never really got it. Like, I looked at it, and I go, oh, that's, that's cool. Or, you know, as a kid, I was growing up around a lot of this work, and it was like, to me, it's much more of a nostalgic reflection of my relationship with my grandfather. Sure. And he loved him for the reasons that he loved him. Uh, but he also loved George Brock, and I wasn't a huge Brock fan, but then he loved, you know, uh, like uh, Hieronymus Bosch and Bruegel the Elder and Rembrandt, who I very much did love, but never really got Kandinsky. And so as you're talking about him, I'm understanding him. I don't hate him. I don't love him. I feel I like him. I could see it. I totally get it. I just don't relate to it, I guess, on a deeper level. But you're telling me he used to be your number one artist, so just tell he me why. did. Well, I think that as I've developed as a scholar, I really approach art through the postmodern lens. And what that means is that rather than just see the work, the painting, as an isolated object, how do I feel when I look at it? The painting, the product, is just one among many factors involved. And so I always see postmodernism kind of like a brick wall. And so the painting is one brick. The historical context is another. And so for me, what's really enlivening about Kandinsky's work is that tons of really significant forces are at play. We have music. We have visual expression of that music. We have a loosening of the representational world into an abstracted realm. We have Nazis. You know me and Nazis. I love talking about that time. And so we have the dynamics and the energetic fear of the 20, early 20th century moving to the mid. So he brings a lot. Exactly. He it's brings like a- so much to the, to the palette and to the canvas. Like it's, it's, it's a lot. There, right? It's an ecosystem yeah. where one thing 
informs another and is informed by something else. And so for me, it isn't just the work. It's how the work was produced, why it was produced, what it was supposed to mean, in what way it's healing. And so I think that's why I really respond to it. But where he would be in the top 100, I don't know. That is such a... So in other words, for our viewers, you know, listeners who are not not clicking on this podcast because they have to do a Kandinsky report and they're doing a quick cheat sheet... (laughs) um, why give me one reason why they should completely just deep dive into his work and just reading about him? Sure. Not well, just a Wikipedia, but a real deep dive. Yeah, because some real people deep dive. really want to know. I think that a way that we can really fully explore the true resonance of his work is that that supposition that he was the first artist ever to paint something abstract because that completely shifted the way that artists see the world. This loosening tether to nature in a way that feels literal, that is something that still informs artists today. And so if you take nothing from Kandinsky, let him be your conduit into the world of abstraction. Makes sense to me. (laughs) You know, look, I I think... Kandinsky, he's just he's just part of history now. You know what I mean? I feel like he's one of those artists that we just have to talk about because he's part of art history. And I think you gave a very compelling wa- reason why we should investigate him and love him, and or at least appreciate him. You don't have to love anything, obviously. Right. <laughs> but you know, for me, I, I I look at his work. Did he do uh, my my other? question to my to myself yesterday was god i don't remember if he did mobiles like alexander calder john moreau mobiles did he not he only worked in uh paint right and drawings that was my understanding okay. but his work does sort of look like a flat two-dimensional it does version i of mean calder that's smart i think that a lot of people must have taken up from what he did and take and took it into a 3d world and become very successful from it i mean if we start to really look at the lineage of that it doesn't just exist because it is more than musical and more than painting and more than dimension. It, it's more. It's dimensionally 3D. It, it lives in a different kind of space and atmosphere. I think it's kind of interesting in that way. Definitely. But what what's funny about the comparison that you make with Calder, which I think is really apt, is that Calder was not trying to self-consciously abstract the representational world in the way that Kandinsky was. And so even though their forms may look the same for Kandinsky, it's really an essentialized horse and rider or stream or body of, or or a, a mass, like a mountain. And with Calder, I don't really think that that was his impetus. And so it's funny how we can look at something and be inspired by it without really fully understanding what produced it in the first place. And so it's more of a, a surface level understanding, which is great because yes, it was it was really propulsive for so many artists who came after Kandinsky. But for me, the true heart of his work is in this spirituality. The fact that he was trying to give the world something that was being stripped in every aspect of life, that we politically are just in total turmoil and he is trying to re-infuse creative spaces with something that he felt was going to be regenerative. Beautifully said. Ladies and gentlemen, Kandinsky, and to be anonymous. Say his first name? Walisi. <laughs> no. Willisy. Try again. No. 
Wallacey. Vasily. Vasily. <laughs> but do you say all of a sudden, you say, you know, you don't say Diga. You say Diga. I do. I say, I say Diga. Diga. Okay. Okay. So, <laughs> Wallacey. <laughs> Kandinsky, guys. Kandinsky. Let's just think of that. Peace. <laughs>